You have questions? We have answers. We're two Southern moms on the backside of raising kids. And we have some things to say. We've lived life, made mistakes, and learned some lessons. Join us for answers to the questions you just want to ask your mom. Hey, welcome to another Just Ask Your Mom podcast. I'm Renee Sproles. I'm Bonnie Blaylock. And today we are doing a little something different. We are doing a series of article reviews. And we have picked um, a group of articles on a certain topic. We're going to talk about what the authors have said and maybe our perspective having raised children. So Bonnie, what are we talking about yeah. today? So these are from mostly from the Atlantic and it was based on a series that they did on uh, the rise in childhood and young adult anxiety and what basically what has happened to American childhood. So you know that we protect children from harm. Of course, we all want to do that. Um, you know, we buy car seats, childproof, teach them to swim. But we want to know more and more, is there a way that we can inoculate our children against future anguish? So what do we do if our child seems overwhelmed by life in the here and now? And I'm hearing more and more about that um, just from pediatricians and everyone I talk to that um, that's what they're seeing in therapy offices now. That's what they're seeing in pediatricians offices now is everything from the neck up. Yeah, it's so surprising to me. Yeah, the statistics of anxiety and depression, um, which then lead to worse and worse disorders if you have that early early in life, it leads to worse things. Um, so yeah, from about 2000 to 2017, the percentage of 12 to 17 year olds that had experienced a major depressive episode shot up from 8% to 13%. Um, even more wrenching, which I couldn't believe, um, the trend in the teen suicide numbers, um, from, from 10 to 24 year olds rose 56%. 56% overtaking homicide as the second leading cause of death in this age group after accidents. And then, um, particularly startling suicides by children ages five to 11 have oh. almost doubled in recent years. And just let that sink in for a minute. That's what they're dealing with in ERs right now is child suicide attempts. Yeah, this, that's so sad to me. It was, it was really startling when I read that. Um, and, I guess surprising to me was because um, I immediately thought, oh, te technology, that's like the right. problem immediately. And they said, um, actually, we, be we believe that smartphones and social media are to blame, but it doesn't really explain the distress we're seeing in kids who have phones. So overall associations between screen time and adolescent well-being range from relatively small to non-existent. Mm-hmm. I found that really hard to believe, but then as I read on, I began to see why right. they were saying that. So many of those younger age kids don't even have technology. They don't have phones. They're not texting. So that's coming from something else in the environment. That's right. That's right. Um, so often these disorders, these articles say, begin in very early childhood. Mm -hmm. So when you see a teenager with anxiety disorder and maybe OCD and now a depressive episode coming on, you can typically trace it back to um, early childhood years mm -hmm. and there is correlation um, in families with this but it's not only determined by right. families. it's not what just it? genetic it was just 30 to 40 percent anxiety disorders are um, genetically 
right. connected. So m- the majority of them are not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike some other like bipolar and depression, which is over 50% right. genetically but, connected. But now you're seeing, um, but there is a correlation between anxious children and anxious parents. Yeah. And that's kind of what we want to focus on today. Like, I think that's the origin of where all this angst and anguish is coming from. Yeah. One of my favorite lines I've highlighted here said, anxiety disorders are well worth preventing, but anxiety itself is not something to be warded off. Yeah. What? (laughs) I thought it was a bad word. Yeah, I know. I know. Like anxiety, everybody's anxious, right? They're anxious about, you know, their child getting into the right preschool, then their child getting into the right school. And Mm -hmm their career and their what their test scores are and what, what, what foods their child is eating and all this crazy stuff so um I even was surprised to hear there's a thing called school refusal yeah it kids. gets bad enough your anxiety gets bad enough that you just you feel so bad like you literally physically feel bad I can't go to school I just can't go it's too much too much pressure too much social interaction that I can't deal with too many things and so the parents let them stay at home listen not that, to homeschool them, but just to not go to school. Just to not go to school, right. So that is that is so foreign to me because as a child of the 70s, <laughs> listen, I'm sorry, teachers, if former teachers of mine, if you're hearing this, but like I had to have a good little fever to be able to stay home from school. Like a 100 degree fever, we're on the borderline there and we're certainly not getting Tylenol. And you might just have to go ahead and march yourself to class. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just... It's just a different type yeah. of parenting that it is that makes that judgment call versus you feel bad about school, so you're not going to go. I would. There is no possible way I would have ever told my mom or my dad. I'm just not going. I'm just not going. Okay, one time, <laughs> the bad perm that I got in seventh grade. <laughs> she took me to the barber styling college. I looked like a poodle. I was horrified. It's the worst age. And to you get... got to stay home for that? No. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. I said I'm not going. That's the only time I ever even said I'm not going. And my mom was like, she just laughed. Like, (laughs) sorry. Yeah. (laughs) That's not happening. Yeah. Someday I will post my seventh grade school picture and everyone will run in fright because it was that same poodle perm. I'm afraid. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, this, this was interesting to me. A childhood therapist and author of Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents said that the worse the numbers get about our kids' mental health, the more anxiety, depression, and suicide increase, the more fearful parents become. Mm. The more fearful parents become, the more they continue to do the things that are inadvertently contributing to these problems. Uh, so it's like the crazy cycle. Right. I mean that from the book Love and Respect. They call that um, the crazy cycle when the wife doesn't respect the husband and the husband acts unloving to the wife. And you oh, get into this crazy cycle over and over. I don't mean your child is crazy. Right. I mean, it's just a bad cycle that doesn't bring anyone to a better place yes. you're constantly pulling each other down right and um this was interesting to me too that just to be specific here age four you might see a specific phobia in your child then at age seven there might be separation anxiety in addition to the phobia and then it um at age 12 you're gonna add social anxiety to those other two and it's kind of stacking yes so okay who cares if your kid's afraid of bugs you know or emma was afraid of birds yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. That's funny. <laughs> it was such an odd thing, I thought, to be afraid of. But that was just a tr- typical childhood fear. Yeah. We didn't see these things compound. But I thought that was helpful 
for parents to assess. Yeah. Is it getting worse Mm -hmm. or is it something that's going to gradually go away by Mm -hmm. talking through it? Right. So, yeah. So there's this really cool, um, and this was out in 2020, which was when it was really getting talked about, um, this treatment at Yale University's Child Study Center. And they're using something called SPACE, Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions. So it's treating kids, I thought this was interesting, who are coming in with all this like school refusal and strange, um, just anxiety behaviors, OCD. Um, I, I can only eat this one food. Oh yeah, that was so weird. And to if me. I can't find it, I have to. I have to be sure to take it with me, you know. Or I'm afraid of being alone in my house, and so um, they're installing like I don't know speakers and tracking things on their parents' phone, so they can always keep track of their parents oh in the house because they're afraid. Yeah, um, things like that. So they're working with instead of working directly with the kids at this Yale program, they're instead treating the parents. Hmm. So. Not that it's the parents' fault, because these anxiety things can come from lots of different places, but the way that parents react to their kids' anxiety um, just has a big impact on whether it gets better or whether it gets worse. Yeah, the school phobia um, I read in the articles, uh, this one family, the, the psychologist said, okay, so when your child stays home from school, what happens? Well, he still has access to his phone, the computer. Netflix, everything. Well, it's what teenager wouldn't want to stay home and do those things. Mm -hmm. They said, no, no, no. Like if you are staying home, then you don't get rewarded. Um, So we're going to um, cut the Wi-Fi off. Mm -hmm. The um, we're we're not letting you use the data on your phone. You can't watch Netflix. And um, some parents had a really hard time like coming along on that. And they mm-hmm. said, well, it's not even possible. We're not going to be there. And they're like, mm, you can take the cord <laughs> to your router. You mm-hmm. can take the cord from your TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, you can make it work. You can, if you want to make it work. And they said actually that that helped. Right. So little by little, mm-hmm. he transitioned back into, okay, well, you know, I think I can maybe get back to school. Mm-hmm. He just had to drive to school and take a picture of himself. Did you remember that part? Yes. Little by little. To show, okay, I came, but he didn't walk in. Uh-huh. And then he eventually, you know, got where he's about to graduate, I think. Yeah, he made it through. And I was doing so much better. So amazing. It's like a reconditioning back into the phobia of what it was. Yeah, he even got a girlfriend and ended up, you know, just doing all the normal high school stuff. Living normal life. Yeah. So, I mean, and that, again, that was a principle that my parents just did with me. If I stayed home from school and was sick, I could watch a little TV, but it was not a big fun day for Renee. Right. Yeah. We (laughs) weren't going to go out and get takeout Mm -mm. and we weren't going to have fun and games. No, because they wanted to be sure that I wasn't going to be taking advantage of the ability to say I'm sick and stay home. I did try to put the thermometer on the light bulb one time, (laughs) but it like went up to 109. That's like a Brady Bunch technique. I couldn't get it to come down. (laughs) So it didn't work. Um, so the whole the key word um, that they found was parental accommodation. So, like if your child gets into an OCD behavior where they're having to wash their hands all the time, um, which is growing actually because of COVID, mm-hmm. I know a lot of families are increasing in this kind of thing. Um, then the family members just just to create peace, just to keep the peace in the short term, parents end up doing the same thing the child is doing so oh oh okay you have to wash your hands all the time well I'll wash my hands too and then pretty soon the entire family is doing the entire the OCD behavior of washing their hands so we all are bending over backwards accommodating this child's 
phobia, anxiety, need, and then it becomes a norm in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so accommodating the behavior instead of working with it or stepping back from it, like the school example, um, makes everything worse. Yeah, it does. It it does. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, how did the siblings feel um, mm. who are being made to accommodate this behavior? It would seem like preferential treatment yeah. to me for one sibling and could create some bad dynamics, um, even in your own home as you're trying to keep the peace. Sibling conflict. Yes. Sibling rivalry. Yeah. yeah. Sibl- sibling rivalry for sure. Who's getting the most attention. Yeah. So they were, they found that 95% of parents of anxious children accommodated. They did almost these all. behaviors. Yeah. Almost all of them. And higher degrees of accommodation were associated with more severe anxiety symptoms. The Say more severe environment. Say that again. <laughs> higher degrees of accommodation create more severe anxiety symptoms. So, that, I think that parents don't believe that or they wouldn't. They don't. don't. Because it appears that the anxiety is diminishing, right? Because right, because you're, you're helping it. Right, in the short term. Like the kid who was afraid to um, be upstairs in their house, so the mm-hmm. mom always went upstairs with them. Mm-hmm. Anytime they had to get anything from upstairs. Yes. Like, I, I can't. <laughs> right. Well, we all know. I mean, if you're a parent at all and you have a two-year-old and they don't like the itchy tag or they don't like the way their socks you know, are feeling this certain way, or they don't like getting this, this color cup, you know, that you gave them in the morning for breakfast. So, um, even if your child is not yet clinically anxious, the everyday efforts that we make to prevent our kids distress, like any amount of unpleasantness is what we are trying to go for now in our society. I think, um, minimizing things that worry them or scare them, assisting with difficult tasks rather than letting them struggle may not help them manage it in the long term may not I, it will not help manage it right in the long term there so my my um question I asked myself when I was thinking through this with my toddlers is um are they characterized by getting the blue cup mm-hmm. without argument mm-hmm. if they're characterized by getting the blue cup without argument then I'll let them pick whatever cup they want if they're not characterized by that and I mean that I mean like most of the time they're okay with the blue cup. No kid's going to always be happy with your choices. But then they then that showed me they had the um, moral maturity, the self-control to be allowed that choice. Mm-hmm. And then so they're gaining freedoms and, instead of the other way around, instead of them dictating to me. Oh, yeah. You know, what how life is going to be. Mm-hmm. But that requires time. Yes. A little more effort on the parents' part. Yeah. More effort on the front end, especially the first five years of life. Definitely the first five years of life. And you have to be willing to take some conflict. You have to be willing to take some unpleasantness. You have to be willing to hear them cry or whine or complain or throw a full-blown tantrum. And that's not fun. Right. And so if you only have, say, two hours with your child in the evenings, three hours with your child in the evenings, then a lot of parents don't want to do that. And so I always say, well, you've had two choices. Put everything on the table in your life, all your commitments, and try to find more time so that you can do that. Or you can go on the way things are. You know, but you're in this class <laughs> with me because you wanted some other options. So here's your other option. Create more time and go ahead and, and deal with the things that arise. That's childhood. That's not abnormal childhood. Right. Childhood is, is full of times of conflict. 
yeah, some some periods more than others yeah. developmentally. Yeah. So so I try to see, tell parents, you know, if you can really lay the foundation in those first five years, of like just really knowing, okay, it's going to take some time here to um, have this little wonderful person be a welcome addition to our home mm-hmm. and not the center of our universe around which we orbit. Um, and that means that they're not always going to get their way and they have to learn the rules of our house. And you know what? Fun, fun. You get to make the rules for your house. <laughs> so yeah. let's make some rules and have some clear boundaries. And and you know what that really ends up creating is less conflict. Yeah. That gives the years like 5 to 15 with very low conflict. Right. Before you hit those years of a little bit higher conflict again. Right. So they're, instead of choosing that, though, I think a lot of parents today, for for many reasons kick that can down the road and just say, well, we got to get up and make it to school and work tomorrow. And we only have these one or two hours in the evening. So let's just go to bed. Let's just go to bed. However, we have to make it to bed. If our 10 year old is still sleeping with us, fine. Cause we need our sleep. So you're kicking that can down the road. How long it gets kicked? Anybody's guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing from these this literature that it goes into adulthood. It goes into college years. It go it, it it's kind of this festering wound that doesn't get better. And what I try to what I try to tell people because it does it's so uncomfortable when your kids throwing a fit and you know and they I remember we'd be playing Candyland. Emma always wanted the Queen Frostine card. If she didn't get the Queen Frostine card, let me just say it did not go well. And that was kind of our little afternoon ritual while Houston was napping. We'd play Candyland. Sometimes I just, I would peek, you know, in the deck and see like every other card, which one is it? And um, yeah, sometimes I slipped Queen Frostine into the deck where she would draw it because uh-huh. I just wasn't up for the fight. But most of the time I was like, no, we're going to deal with this. <laughs> we're going to learn not to throw a tantrum when mom gets the card that I want. Right. Because that's how life works. <laughs> That's right. Not just one afternoon in the Sproles household. <laughs> That's going to be life. And so it was, it really was an everyday, many times a day choice that you have to make. And I know you're not always going to, you know, straight down the line be like, you have to bend. No, no, you're no, gonna, no. You're going to bend to them a little bit. But I did want a teacher. Like I wanted her to be able to have that self-control. I didn't want her to be at a friend's house. Yeah. And have the same reaction. That's humiliating for her. It's dis. Uh, respectful to the family that she's visiting yeah same with eating you know do you did I want the food battles no I didn't want the food battles and did I want my toddler to be hungry whiny and whiny (laughs) by not giving them a snack before the next meal no but I wanted them to have the skill of being able to find something to eat when they were in any situation right when they were at a friend's house I wanted them to be able to eat and not have to ask for the chicken nuggets mm-hmm. every time. And so, yeah, we if they didn't want to eat it, we just, I said, okay, you can wait till the next meal. And hunger, you know, look around America. <laughs> are children skinny and starving? No. I mean, so many parents are afraid to let their kids be hungry. Mm-hmm. For one meal, for two hours. Let them be hungry. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great driver. It drives me to flexibility. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm just a firm b- believer in allowing your kid to suffer some distress some anxiety when they skin their knee Bonnie like what do you do Mm -hmm. 
well, swoop in and pick them up. No, when they skin their knee and you rush over and you're like, oh my goodness, are you okay? Are you okay? Let mommy kiss the boo-boo and hug, 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 pat, pat, pat. And they don't even have a second to breathe. They're looking to you. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they immediately look to you for, oh, do I need to cry? Do I, am I okay with this? So if you just like back up a minute, take a breath, bite your tongue and clench your fists if you have to and say, um, just count to 10, let them figure it out for 10, 20 seconds. Most of the time, I'd say nine times out of 10, they'll sort of stand up, look around, brush their knees off. They might whimper a minute and then they're good to go. They figured it out on their own. But when you're jumping in there, taking care of it immediately with fear, you're telling them, I don't think you can handle this. I don't think you can operate apart from me. Yeah, I, I, that's with any kind of um, play as well. You know, when you, you should be letting them have free play, you should not be on top all the time. Yeah, structuring all their play. And so they're learning how to make wise decisions. You know, they're learning, oh, if I climb too high mm-hmm. and I fall, this might be bad. You know, Houston broke his arm. I guess he was maybe five years old. He wasn't that high. Mm-hmm. He's on a playground and maybe five feet up. And he jumped and tried to grab onto monkey bars and he couldn't keep his grip and he fell and broke his arm. And we said, what were you doing? Like, what, did, what were you thinking? He said, I was just trying to be Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> well, guess what? He didn't try to be Spider-Man anymore. <laughs> he didn't do that. Those crazy. He, he, he did still play and, you know, climb and everything, but he, he learned painful. Yeah. And you didn't engineer that. Let's just see if Houston's going to break his arm. No, <laughs> we were standing right there. Yeah. As a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. But, um, but those things are going to happen. You know, we used to ride our bikes hither and yawn yeah, miles away until dark mm-hmm. no helmets by the way no helmets no all over the neighborhood and no way I never let my kids do that mm-hmm. absolutely not I had seen way too many of those you know crime shows missing children shows I was not letting my my kids do that so I'm you know I certainly wasn't right free and unafraid as I would maybe would have liked to have been but right that I think that's one of the symptoms of all of this stuff too is there's kind of I mean, some fear is healthy fear. It's there for a reason. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a valid, legitimate emotion, but some of it's overblown. Yes. And some of it comes from a place that's not logical. It's not legitimate. It's not um, healthy. So you kind of have to evaluate. Yeah, constantly like pray for wisdom and and know yourself. Do you tend to be one of those helicopter parents hovering or do you tend to be a little more standoffish? We all have to kind of self-regulate, right? You know, um, some of us can tolerate a lot more risk than others. So you don't want to tolerate too much risk to the harm of your child. But again, you don't want to live in fear. Fear and guilt, never good places to parent from. So going back to this Yale study, they, over the course of these sessions that parents came in with anxious kids, um, so they had helped the parents start figuring out like how to step back, just step back. Um, don't wait until your kid gets into therapy for this. Start stepping back a little bit. Reduce your accommodations. Reduce your swooping in. Reduce your urge to fix it all the time. And, I mean, you can express empathy. Um, you can tell them that they can do it. They're, you, you know, you're confident in them. Um, and as the par- parents started doing that, the kids started coping for themselves. They got the message, I can do this. I'm competent. I'm capable. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, one of the, my favorite quotes in all of the articles um, was from Ned Johnson, who wrote The Self-Driven Child. And um, 
He said since writing that book, he has concluded that parents' overprotection of kids includes an under-recognized element of self-protection. Ouch. When we shelter kids from difficulty or challenge, he says, we are not merely shielding them from distress. We are warding off the distress that their distress causes us. Right. That's so true. That's so hard to hear. (laughs) That's true. Like, just take a minute and let that sink in and think. Am I rescuing my kid? Am I giving them, making sure there's no unpleasantness for them? Or is it because I don't want to have that conflict? I don't want to hear that noise. I don't want to. And if it's the latter, uh, oh, yeah. you might want to reevaluate. Like, what is that going to do down the road? Yeah. So, yeah, more than half of children who live with an anxious parent end up meeting the criteria for an anxiety disorder. So, yeah, parenting is the best um self-improvement endeavor I've ever (laughs) embarked upon (laughs) I've said this so many times but wow like I'm a totally different person than I was 25 years ago and um just the the character work that goes on when you're responsible for other people um it's really humbling yep (laughs) yeah yeah so um you interesting that you talked about the laying things on the table and creating more time to deal with things um, because one of these psychologists said, if the instinct to protect a child leads many of us into the trap of overparenting, time pressures tend to keep us there. Um, in conversation after conversation with parents struggling to reduce a child's dependency and fearfulness, rushed weekday mornings and evenings emerged as the crucible in which bad habits had formed. So I just got to get my child to school. I have to go to work after I drop you at school. So whatever it takes, if you, if you're afraid to go upstairs, I'll go upstairs for you. If you have to have your shoes tied 13 different times, I'll do it for you. Whatever it takes, because we, I don't have time. I don't have time for this. Yeah. That, um, that makes me think of a mantra from this. Or what's not a mantra. I, I would call it, I would make it my mantra mm-hmm. <laughs> if I were, if I were parenting right now, um, that one of the therapists in this article said, short-term pain leads to long-term gain. Mm-hmm. Amen. Has to convince parents short-term pain leads to long-term gain. So combine a permissive streak in American parenting and where we indulge our children and encourage their independence, and you have an extremely labor-intensive recipe for parental misery. Yeah. We're hovering. We're putting all this on ourselves. Do you think your parents felt this overwhelming um, burden to make sure your life turned out just right? No. Did you know that the word parent only became a verb in 1970? (laughs) No. Yeah. So what did they call it before? Raising our kids. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Having children. But parent became a job then with all of the change in our culture, um, two parent working families. It became this, um, our roles changed. Like we don't even know anymore who does what in our households, who's supposed to do this and who gets more share of the the chores at home and who's going to take you to school. All of that changed and it became this huge um, job that was created. If you decided to stay at home or not, parenting now became a job and you had to do it well, like almost perfectly well. The pressure to do it that way became intense all of a sudden and no one knows what to do with that mm-hmm. I, no one no our parents didn't deal with it I don't think we dealt with it 
that yeah I didn't I experience didn't, that I know I mean just the perfectionist side of me it's like well if this is what I'm gonna do I better do it really really well no and it wasn't this drive to make sure that little Jennifer was perfectly happy all the time like that rested on me of course that's gonna make you full of anguish and anxiety because that's impossible for anyone's happiness to rest on you how someone's happiness is their own yeah and 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 really dependent on circumstance. We can't control our circumstances. So um, many, many times we cannot. And I always find it helpful to look at other cultures and how they view just any kind of topic we're talking about. And so I really liked their um, contrast with Dutch parenting and American parenting. Um, They said American parents much more frequently emphasize individual attention, active interaction, and the developmental needs of the child while Dutch parents put their faith in the regularity of habits like rest, quiet, and cleanliness, family time together, especially around meals. And one result of these different goals, equally devoted to the children's welfare, was that American parents were often tired and frazzled. They tended to complain about their children's sleeping habits and gave in to their demands because they were too exhausted to fight in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, So the Dutch get it right. In this area, the French, God bless them. <laughs> I love me some French parenting. This was not one of our articles, but I, I did, as I was reading this selection of Atlantic articles, I just did a little reading on French parenting yeah. because I've just loved reading about it in the past. And I did take some cues from French parenting when I was raising my kids. They do things um, like... Allow children to do difficult things themselves. Mm. Me do it. Yeah. Toddlers, me do it. And they let them try. That's that closing that gap, right? Right. Try a hard thing. And even if I mess up, it's okay. I can. Right. I'm free to fail because I can do it again. Yeah. And then they also um, praise sparingly. (laughs) You know, every single time your kid ties their shoe, (laughs) does not deserve a, you're amazing. Exactly. And they, they know the falseness in that. They know it. They know, you know, when when we don't keep score in the Little League games, they're keeping score. Yeah. They know who's winning. They know, especially boys. Yeah. You know, boys love competition. And um, some reading I've done about classroom settings where they're just eliminating competition. Girls are thriving. They love that because mm-hmm. they love mutuality and bridge building. And the boys are bored out of their minds. Yep. They're not allowed rough and tumble play on the playground. They're not allowed to compete in the classroom. And they're, they're not... And they're falling behind. Yeah, they're falling behind. They're not, they're not doing as well. Yep. I love how French parents understand adult-only time and make their kids, you know, step aside. <laughs> you can be in the room, but you're just not the center of attention. At all times. Yeah, playground time. They're not allowed to just interrupt mom every, you know, moment mm-hmm. the moms are talking. Mm-hmm. They also um, believe that infants can learn to sleep early and well. It's not luck of the draw. They can. That it's a, it's just a um, skill, like learning to crawl and walk. It is. Ask any pediatrician and they will tell you the same. Yeah. It's called sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene and there's things you can do. And um, I love the French approach to food. You know I would. Yeah. Because I love to cook. Their school cafeterias (laughs) are amazing. They're fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah. There's no chicken nuggets and macaroni in a French kitchen. Their kids eat fruits and vegetables from very early on, and um, if they don't want to eat it, they don't get a they don't get a peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. They just don't eat. Right. There's not an alternative. That was I 100 percent took my cues from that, and 
they're allowed to suffer sometimes. So, you know, when it's time for that immunization, you know, the parent's like, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. This is part of life. Yeah. This is what you have to do. You know, we're not going to um, go get ice cream and then play on the playground. And all. you just can get a, <laughs> you just can get your shot and we're going to go on. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and they, they believe that um, manners are also learned. You can learn to look someone in the eye. Well, um, you can learn. I mean, they they expect it. To me, that goes without saying. Like, no. Why do we not believe that in this country? Me? I like don't American parents, they're just like, oh, you know, <laughs> they're shy. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's going to take them longer uh-huh. to learn to do that because they're shy. Mm-hmm. And so I just yeah, and they say no and they mean it. You know, and that's just boundaries. That's just healthy boundaries for anybody, for you and your spouse. Yeah, you that, and your children. I think all of that used to be parenting in America. And then our culture shifted so dramatically that now parenting, like they call it a parenting crisis. Since when is parenting a crisis? I mean, we've done this for millennial people (laughs) all over the world. This is how we reproduce and continue the human race. So I, I don't really know why it's become this crisis, except that we're approaching it as if, um, and I just, this struck me so much that our, our children are not our masterpieces. And I just stepped back from that for a minute. I was like, wow. Yeah, that really, <laughs> that really hit home. Like, no, you're right. Our children are God's masterpieces. And our job is to steward that. But really, they don't have very much to do with me at all. And if you are raising your children and they're getting older and leaving home, you're realizing that. They really don't. You influence them, but they really don't have much to do with you at all. Yeah, I I um was struck by this at the end of my parenting journey. I'm looking through scripture and I'm I'm like basically what I see through Bible story after Bible story is God calling people to tasks, but he's never really calling them to the outcome. He's <laughs> just like, "Moses, you're going to lead these people out of Egypt and that's your job and they're gonna rebel against you and you know all the things we know they do to make his life a misery but he was not responsible for the outcome he was responsible for faithfulness in the job he'd been given Mm -hmm. and that's very freeing right in um, parenting and everything but you know in parenting especially if you are faithful with the time you've been given with your children if you're faithful in how you steward them and try to um, lead them well then you fulfilled your end of the bargain. Right. Now, you said something here before we started about being good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the that? beginning. So um, the, remember the psychologist said, you don't have to have a perfect mother. You have to have a good enough mother. Yeah. That, that was what this doctor of psychology had decided after doing all this research. To make it. For their child to, to thrive. Yeah. For their child to thrive. Yeah. yeah. So whew, take a breath, moms. Mm-hmm. That lets the pressure off. You just have to be good enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this like goes, we'll talk about school for a minute. Um, all of this is, but it starts in early, early childhood. You're swooping in. You don't want your child to have any unpleasantness or tears or um, they should get all the choices that they want um, just to pave the way and make life golden in their little tiaras. And so then you get to school and we did have this when my kids were in school. Um, this invention called the, some genius made this parent portal in the education system. And this goes from kindergarten on up. And basically it's just a little window that you can check in your teacher's grade book at any point in time in the day. 
And okay, clever. Sounds clever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. Keep it tabs. And if you talk to any teacher alive, though, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> they are not in favor. Um, because parents are peeking in, they're like obsessively checking it um, throughout the day. Like you're refreshing your email or you're getting your text. It's like a, another phone. So they're constantly looking in on it and they'll know immediately if what grade their child got and the child comes home and, and their language goes something like this. Well, I saw you got a C on that test. I thought we studied for that. And I just sort of heard this red flag, like we, we studied for that. <laughs> and the child knows like they're being observed. The child's always, always supervised, always checked on, always, um, technology on their phone you're tracking them everywhere they go it's like it's like what used to happen to like mental patients and people who are incarcerated right those used to be the only people subject to that sort of um scrutiny in their day like ugh. if, if somebody were doing that to you wouldn't you feel like get off suffocated get off me so i never i didn't even know how to log on to the parent portal k through 12 for either one of my kids um to me, that was their job. You're in charge of your school. I'm considering that your job. Um, that's pretty much all you have to do. So work hard at it. Do your best. If you're having trouble, let me know. I'm here to help. But I never checked up on them. And you'd see, what, at quarterly grades or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you get report cards. Yeah, Still. so you'd see, oh, okay. If they hadn't come to you, I'm sure that you could have said, okay, at that point. Okay, we might have a little course problem. Let's regroup here. And you do a little course correction or whatever. Yeah. Gosh, to check in on them constantly. My kids would have felt like... You didn't trust them? Yeah. Like, I can do this. Why are you... Do you not think I can do this? (laughs) Because that's exactly what it's communicating. (laughs) So the articles just astounded me. I mean, that continues. Like, if I can swoop in and help my kid do good on the science project and do well in this class, then the stakes get even higher when they get to college. And so colleges, now they're calling freshman classes teacups because they're so fragile, they can't handle it when anything goes wrong. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember Emma's freshman year. She had a a friend she met in a class, and she was appalled that there were actual deadlines for work to be turned in that were not flexible, that she had stuff going on in her life. And could the professor please move the deadline? I'm like... What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Like, you've got to bend. You know, you have to bend to your professor's standards, I'm sorry to say. Right. Um, I, I, I'm shocked at that. So that's bleeding over into. So they get, they get through college that way, but they're on call all the time. Their parents are, can now text them at all hours of the day. Instead of, don't do instead it. Instead of leaving them alone. Please don't, don't do, do it. it. Leave your kids alone. <laughs> Leave your adult children alone. Let them figure it out. And they are calling, the parents are calling administration, they're intervening to get their class schedules, they're making sure they have, you know, the primo dorm room and all the stuff for their precious little one. And (laughs) some of the college campuses, what was the thing they had? Two different processions. Yeah. At a university in Chicago or something, that freshman orientation, they're closing it out. They had to have a recessional for the students and whisk them away to some other activity. And then another recessional so the parents would actually leave the building, be unable to track down their child, get in their cars and drive and away. get off my they campus. They couldn't get them to get off campus. <laughs> right. So they're, they're having to make positions, actual positions, dean of parents. Oh. To, yeah, corral these over-parenting people who, are, who cannot bear the thought 
that their kids are leaving them. Stop the insanity. Stop it. Live a freer life. So, yeah. It's so freeing when you can, um, when you can just, like you said, when you are free to know they are not your masterpiece. Wow. Yeah. They are their own human with their own volition who's a welcome addition to your family. Yeah. Who have who you've been blessed to live they've with. They've got built-in talents and amazing gifts that they need to struggle to find. Um, so a lot of kids now are like, because everything isn't perfectly laid out for them, <laughs> like they can't make a decision because they don't trust themselves to make a decision. Mom's always made the decisions. And they, so they can't pick a major. They don't know, well, this option might be just as good as that one. And how do I know how to choose? And how, it's like becoming this young adult crisis so much that one of these article, one of the other articles that we read, um, it's called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. And I thought it was excellent <laughs> by Lori Gottlieb, who's a therapist, um, started seeing all these 20 and 30 year olds in her office. And normally she's a child and family therapist and she would see, um, you know, the usual family trauma and divorce and and childhood things like that. But she started to see these 20 and 30 year olds who had no complaints at all. They were completely, they had great childhoods. Their mom and dad were great. They're, they're my best friends actually. And, um, no, everything, I had everything I needed in childhood, but for some reason I'm just anxious and I'm fearful and I'm depressed and I'm just not happy. And she started to think like, is this a joke? (laughs) And this was the way she was trying to parent her own small children at the time. Right. You know, that was her goal, you know, was to maximize happiness, minimize anxiety. And she's like, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah. So she was seeing the logical outcome of what she was doing with her toddlers in her office every day. And they, they were young adults who just couldn't cope. So this is what's been playing out over the past two decades. And now they're in therapy. Oh, because now I know. there's young adults are in therapy, and, and their parents are paying for it, <laughs> and, right? And they're happy too because they want to help their children be happy. Yes, 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 yes. And um, I also thought it was interesting in that article you're talking about that um, the number of kids we're having is playing into this as well. They think because we have fewer children, so you and I only had two. Mm-hmm. You can focus a lot of attention on one or two kids, but once you get three, four, five, six, seven kids, and my friends who have six, seven, eight kids, they just know like obsessing, helicoptering is not physically possible over those. And so maybe some of this it was prevented before because we just had, we didn't have birth control and we were, you know, our attention was diverted among many different children right. and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't obsess. It was kind of like a natural stopgap for that. Yeah. So, and, and can we just dial it back from college back to preschool? I got to, I got to read this statistic, um, about the potty training (laughs) that, um, like many years ago it was, um, yeah, 60% of 18 month olds, 18 month olds, one and a half were potty trained. And now, in the early 2000s, only about half of American children were toilet trained by age three. Yeah. So double that. Only half. By, and it's not uncommon to see four-year-olds wearing pull-ups. Okay? We're not shaming you if your child's not potty trained. No. So is that because our bladders have, have <laughs> exactly. gone through some evolution? I, I just, I saw this on display. Again, I love a cultural comparison. We went to China. 
And, you know, they think diapers are nasty. Mm -hmm. They are like, you are letting your kids sit in their own pee and poop. Like, how could you possibly do that? So they have little crotchless baby outfits. And they, um, when they're out in the park and everything, if the baby starts to pee, they just squat them down. You know, you just learn to pee. Mm -hmm. Um, Not on your clothes, you know. Right. And, yeah, their kids are probably trained way, way earlier than ours. And I was just fascinated by that. I thought, that's just a mess in your house. But their houses are mostly, like, tiled. Oh, you know, so you they are don't have cleaned carpeting up. It's like a puppy. and stuff. So they're, yeah, so it's like a puppy. Okay. Yeah, you're cleaning up, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, they, a lot of them are living together with extended family. Yeah, grandparents. Um, so that you've got three or four able to, you know, help with that. So that's the time crunch. Yeah. Because you have extra hands. You have extra hands. Yeah, which brings, you know, they do orbit. They do orbit the one poor child who that bears all that attention. One, yeah. But it is, yeah, it does help with, with those with those things. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, so. 18 months old? I wouldn't have even thought about trying to potty train an 18 month no. old. No, and some kids obviously don't have the, that's a skill too. But listen, if, if like half of the, over half the kids, like apparently some of them do. Yeah, and so they're attributing that to the time it takes, right? Like to take a weekend basically boot camp of okay we're gonna start wearing underwear now and we're gonna do it in a weekend and the changes who has who has a whole weekend that's what the parents are saying who has a whole weekend or a whole week to devote totally to that it's just easier and so they're four and five years old and they're starting school with these highly academic kindergartens you know really really rigorous academics and then you know half the kids are in pull up still because mm-hmm. they yeah I think it's a time thing for sure that's yeah wow. that's crazy to Wild. me listen I was so glad when we were past that me too with both of my <laughs> it just felt like we had climbed a mountain me man <laughs> we were done we were done we were done Houston I got to give you a shout out you potty trained overnight <laughs> that should have shown me his iron will right there and he's exhibited that over and over times since <laughs> yes. yes he has two and a half years old shout out to you yep, yep. That was such a gift. I also loved that um, they talked about chores being a positive um, stressor that helped you deal with um, discomfort. Yeah. So like household chores, you're doing things you don't want to do. That's a great, that's a great point because it is a positive thing. Like we all have to do stuff we don't want to do and it's not necessarily that you've fallen and skinned your knee. It's just that, you know, you have to pick up your socks. Yes. Yeah. You And so um, 82% uh, of adults surveyed in these articles said they had had regular household chores as a child, but their children, mm. um, 28% had chores. So the, the decline was very steep, very steep. So our children were responsible for their own rooms, but then as welcome members of the family, they also had other chores. The room was not their responsibility only. That was just their personal space. So, you know, some, as early as just sorting silverware Yeah, no, when they're three years old. You were home all the time. You were homeschooling. And so you had you had the time and the hours in a day to do that. But you think about a two-parent working home. They're both coming home in the evening. You've got a limited time to do homework, which is all important now. And um, dinner, maybe. Get, do your reading log and go to bed, right? And that leaves no time for the child to do any chores it's just you <laughs> the parent yeah I'm even getting more that exhausted. because especially if you're both working no that's not gonna work people need to contribute they you need to like again sit down put everything on the table that needs to be done 
and then figure it out. When when I started working outside the home, our kids were older, so the stakes went up a lot. And do you think they liked that? Like they were very capable. So now they had big chores in the house. And I still wanted to do the cooking because I love it. But David said he would do the laundry. They were already doing their own laundry, but they had big portions of the house they had to help keep straight. And um, and then you know who actually ended up paying for their chore to get done? <laughs> David Sproles. <laughs> we all had a little trouble adapting when mom went back to work. He paid the kids to do his our laundry oh. like two or three times. I got really mad, and then I just thought that's entrepreneurial. It's okay. See, think smarter, not harder. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then he and then he figured it out. We all had it was a little learning curve there, but you know, different stages of life. Sometimes you just sit down and regroup. Yeah, and that, that was one big one for us. Yeah, there's lots of, um, but yeah, in those early years, we were definitely home. And I said, okay, if we're home, then this is part of life. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn to clean a bathroom. You're going to learn to mop a floor. You know, we're going to, we're going to divide and conquer here. So I guess to kind of wrap up and see, um, like, what is the hopefulness of this? I think I would say to just sort of reevaluate all the things you do in a given day to swoop in, to help, to fix, to comfort, to avoid conflict and see if they're really necessary. Like, do you really need to? And maybe try to leave one or two of those out and back up a little bit and see how your child does. I think you'll be really surprised at how much they thrive, how much more confident they are, how much more happier and um, less anxious they are. And you too, because that's a lot of extra work and time on you to have to (laughs) do for them so much. I I agree. So um, the question I... I want to end with is one that was in the article. I love it. Um, How does your kid do being uncomfortable, being tired, being hot, or being hungry? If the answer to those is not very good, then maybe you're coming in and fixing too often, too soon. Now, I will say the caveat. When they're under five, I did try to be sure they were set up for success because we're doing all that behavior training. Right. So I'm tr- I really tried to make sure they weren't tired, hungry, hot, you know, overstimulated. But after that, after I saw they were characterized by that, yeah. Yeah. Like now that's when the rubber meets the road. That's why all that training is there. Early on. Early on. Because I want you to be able to cope with being tired. Because short-term pain. <laughs> Long-term gain. There you go. <laughs> that's right. I love these articles. I would highly recommend them. Uh, I think... I think they'd be well worth your time. Yeah, they don't take very much time to read, and there's so many good points in them. Um, So I think instead of, maybe instead of aiming for our child's happiness, maybe it's just fine to be good enough. And maybe it's just fine to say, you know, I'm going to try not to hurt you. (laughs) I'm going to try to love you really, really well. And um, maybe that means some of the things that we've talked about today. That's right. Part of loving you well is not always fixing. That's right. So check all this out on our website. We're going to have links to these articles um, called at justaskyourmom.com or on Facebook at justaskyourmom or Instagram at justaskyourmompodcast. And if you're listening, please rate us and give a review and or leave a comment that helps people find us and send us your questions or topics. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you send them to justaskyourmompodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time on Just, Just Ask, Ask Your, Your Mom. Mom.